Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earle. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. I'm Amanda Earle, and this is episode 65. I'm here today with James Lindsay. Hi, James. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the show. I should say that uh, those of you who are listening, well, otherwise, how would you hear the show? So, <laughs> but anyway, there we have a new intro, and it's the Small Machine Talks theme song that um, I wrote and uh, Jennifer Peterson helped me with, and uh, she's uh, also singing the uh, backup harmonies for the intro and the outro. So it's it's quite fun, and I hope I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we had a good time with the with the last one, but it's time for a change. We're in our fifth year, so uh, that's what we're doing. congratulations on your new theme song oh thanks yeah well you know fifth five years it feels like it's time for a change you know different get uh, snazzy with uh and i have to say it was really fun to uh to do but it becomes kind of an earworm for so after a while i find myself uh, just humming it as i'm walking down the street and stuff so (laughs) and i was inspired by mr dress up as one of my uh, inspirations for the uh, oh really there you go yes the kind of tinkly piano sounds at the beginning of the show i'd like to do with a song with puppets but you know that's that's (laughs) that could be another show yeah so let me start off by reading your your bio here uh, James Lindsay is the author of Ireland Sea and the chapbook Ekphrasis Ekphrasis with exclamation marks. He is the coordinator of Pleasance Records and works in book publishing. And uh, that's that. That's a nice short in- short bio. So that's uh, that's good. And I-, I have this quote from the beginning. I thought we, we could open the uh, the episode with a quote that you have in the book, which from the from Dog Part, where you said, "An interview is a kind of intimacy that must fail in order to be near." To uh, near to real, so this is this is what this is. <laughs> this is an interview that will all would would fail. What I, what I'd like to ask you is if you'd be willing to read the title poem, "Double Self Portrait," because that way I don't have to ask any questions. Really, just uh, no. But also, just because the poem, I think it would be nice to open the show with that uh, poem, and people would have a good out, uh, overview of of the idea behind the book. Maybe yeah, pretty much. I I wrote this poem to be like a, almost like a little essay to describe a lot of what I was yeah. doing. I'd be glad to. Yeah, I'll I'll just jump into it then. This is a double self-portrait. Dear reader, earlier in this book, in the Ekphrasis Ekphrasis section, which was originally its own chat book before being absorbed into this book, is the title poem of this book, Double Self-Portrait. I wanted to make a picture. It's based on a picture of the same name by Jeff Wall in which he doubles himself. As I write this, I am fantasizing about using it on the cover of this book. Did it happen? This me will never know. Feel free to whisper a response, useless as it is. I can't tell you how old I was when I first saw a double self-portrait of the photograph, but I was very young, and it was at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's one of the first times I can remember being mesmerized. I can tell you I didn't realize that the two men in the photograph were the same person or that the person was the photographer, but it was backlit. And because my father taught photography, I had already been exposed to images like this. Photographs, but also images that made me reach to something I think of as affect and I couldn't put into words. At 172 by 229 centimeters, it was large. And because it was backlit, It glowed like a softened monitor. I know it was 172 by 229 centimeters, about five and a half by seven and a half feet, because I looked it up just now. But where is it? Whenever I go to the AGO, I look for it, but I can't find it. Perhaps it was never there. Perhaps I saw it somewhere else or never at all. But I did see it, though I didn't know its name. That came later, when I looked it up, when deciding to write Double Self-Portrait the Poem. I remember deciding to write Double Self-Portrait the Poem, and remembering an uncanny warmth washing upon me after seeing the photograph after so long. 
knowing I wanted to write a poem about it or based on it. I wanted to double my memory of the warmth so I, so I could see it again. I wanted to return to somewhere long ago at the AGO. I wanted to reawaken to the vision of a nervous young boy mesmerized and frightened by the image of two stern-looking red-faced men who dressed like his parents dressed. I just now looked at double self-portrait the photograph again, and only one of the doubles is only vaguely red-faced. Yet, in double self-portrait poem, I mention red more than once. To me, the poem is coded in red, and its sibling poem, How Does It Feel, based on a video by Bridget Moser, is blue. A nervous young boy who, I want to say, was on a field trip? He was standing there by himself, maybe lagging behind the other students. I remember him thinking it looked like an advertisement, the kind you might see at a bus stop. Someone could lose themselves like that standing mesmerized before a luminous photograph that eclipses them. And I return to the images, the photograph, but also the boy before the photograph, mesmerized, over and over, until I wrote Double Self-Portrait the Poem. Now I only ever think of it when I'm working on Double Self-Portrait the Collection of Poetry. And when I'm done, I may only ever think of it when I think of my second collection of poetry. I used to believe neglected ref reflections remained in mirrors when I walked away. I used to believe everyone had a perfect doppelganger elsewhere in the world, and if encountered, you would have to fight to the death, because copies are uncanny tyrants that, once discovered, drag each other down in psychic weight. Or, as Leonora Carrington writes in her short story, Jemina and the Wolf, isn't it enough that the world is full of ugly human beings without, without making copies of them? But by the time you read this poem, my first child will be born, and I know he will mesmerize me, and, made out of Nicole and I, will double us, continue us in a way our dog could not. Or, as Amy Hemphill writes in her novella, Troubled Home, when you have a child, your dog becomes a pet. That would not happen to me. I can't stand the sound of a person eating, but I love the sound of a dog crunching down on kibble. The appetite of a baby is frightening to me. Me too, Amy. I'm afraid of the appetite for food and the appetite for me. I worry I won't be enough, be the right person, who will only minimally frustrate them. For they will be born unfairly sublime, a basin for impending spoil. And our dog, what becomes of her? She will fall to the side as we side with our child, ourselves. And the boy, mesmerized before a backlit image, what does he see? A doubled man who reminds him of his parents. A photograph like his father has shown him. The luminescent of adulthood's cave mouth escaping from nervousness. The glow of a red exit sign. A shivering cicada cadence attuned to the moon before it was explored. Not mere rock an awe unfurling, a makeshift sh silk sheet pendant whose flutters physicists cross-examine to divine the inner life of plural bodies in estrangement, an icy sea breeze on a twin-ship township that composes the middle, the time between mesmerization and learning to forgive the fear of frustration, the fear of what I will hand down, especially since it's all a terrible lie. Thanks very much, James. And that, that was uh, that was great. That was James Lindsay reading from his uh, the title poem in uh, Double Self Portrait, his uh, poetry collection that has just come out this year from Woolsack and Wynn, the book, Buck Rider Books imprint. And we'll have that. I'll put the link up to the uh, to the uh, book on the on the site and on the smallmachinetalks.com site. And also uh, with from your bio, your I'll put pleasancerecords.com up there as well. So. Put all, all these all these links up so people can uh, can check it out. Thanks for reading. I know it was a bit long to read, but <laughs> I appreciate you uh, reading. It was great. So um, 
In the poem, you talk about your history with Jeff Wall's double self-portrait photograph. In your acknowledgments, I love reading acknowledgments, by the way. I always go to acknowledgments first when I went, like, it's the first thing I look at. Which is funny. Not that I, I'm not, never looking for my name. Like, it's not like that. I just like no, to I always it. want to find out who people are thanking or who read it first or whatever. I read, I read the notes as well. Those are the two yeah. things I start with in a book. So that's it. Anyway, you, you thank Samara Walbaum and Stuart Ross for help with the cover art. Can you talk about the process of getting permission to use the photo? What was what was involved in that? Yeah, well, as I stated in the poem, like I, at a certain point, I really wanted it to be on the cover. But that's, a, you know, Jeff Wall is a, a, a very major Canadian oh. artist and, and that photograph's really well known. And, and he, he's, you know, his art dealer, he's, he's exhibited around the world. So I knew my chances were pretty slim. But I was working at that time in a bookstore in Toronto called Tight Books. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, one of the co-owners is Samara Walbaum, and uh, she's also an art dealer uh, and a collector and has a gallery in Toronto as well called Scrap Metal. Mm -hmm. And um, so I asked her, and I also asked Stuart Ross, a friend of mine, and um, someone suggested he might be able to help out. You know, he knew some people in Vancouver where Jeff Wall's from. And I, you know, between the two of them, I got in touch with his um, his assistant, Jeff Walls. And I really just said, you know, I don't, I don't have any money. My publisher doesn't have much money. Uh, this is a book of poetry, so it won't make much money. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I told him how much the photograph meant to me, and I sent him. There's two poems actually in the book yeah. called Double Self Portrait as well. One, the one I just read, but one specifically about the photograph, and a Crassus poem as well. Yes. So I sent him. I sent him those poems, and he liked them, and said, you know, all he wanted was final approval over the cover, and that was it. It, it was really easy. Great. That's great. There was uh, someone else I know, and I, I don't remember. I'm trying to remember who it was. Oh, uh, who? I think it was um, Rona Bloom who had a Mark Rothko painting on her cover. And I think it was her. I, I had would have to, but she, there, apparently there's a, there's a little story about that too. So I'm always fascinated by things to do with covers and things like that. It's always a bit tricky. So the phone first, first appeared in Ekphrasis, Ekphrasis, your chapbook with Anne Struther Press that's included in the book, in the poems. And I'm going to include a, a link to that. So with that in mind, what was the process of making the book? Did you collect poems written over the years or did you write new poems with the, the double self-portrait poems in mind? or a combination of the two. I tend to write mostly like book length, long poems or, or chapbook length poems. So I don't have the same issue with choosing things to put into, like it's basically, it's that or nothing, you know? It's like, I can't, I have to get rid of the crap, but I, I can't, like I can't pick and choose in the same way. And so I'm always really interested by how people put together a book when they write, um, you know, poems. One yeah. yeah. Well, I think what I was trying to do is, um, I, I was, I just wanted to write at the beginning. Like I started writing as soon as I completed my first book and um, I wasn't too concerned about what I was doing was good or not. I just wanted to write. And um, at that time, I think I was like, I really wanted to continue. My first book has a lot of humor in it and there's a bit of humor in this, but I also, I, I just wanted to continue with that. So I wrote a couple of, of, of funny poems and then um, I liked the direction I was going, but it kept changing, right? Like I, all of a sudden I wanted to, I, I kept wanting to challenge myself to do things I didn't do in my first book. So I kept the humor continuing at the at the beginning just to keep writing. But then I wanted to add personal connections to it. That became something I wanted. And I wanted to write longer poems like the, the poem yeah. I just read. Like I wanted to challenge myself to that. And so I just, with that in mind, began writing. And I would pause every few months and just look at what I'd done and see if I could spot any connections. And I think one of the techniques I learned while writing my first book that I continued on this one is to look for repetition yeah. within my poems. And, and, and when I was a younger poet, I used to try to, I'd rub that stuff right out. Like if I saw my, myself repeating between poems, I'd say, you, that's cheating or whatever. Is it, is it oh, good. I love cheating. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't feel like that anymore because I thought it was interesting. If I was tempted to reuse a line or tempted to reuse an image, I'd ask myself why, but also just do it. Just, just go for it. So after a while, I realized I had been sort of uh, repeating myself and I, I thought that was really interesting and what what I could do with that in form so at the beginning it became a lot about the idea of doubling and that that made everything click I was writing a crassus poems as well which, which became the chapbook so mm -hmm. I knew that was a form of doubling right there right I was, right. I was you're making a copy of the art 
by writing a poem about it. And that's what I was trying to do with those poems. So I was doing that and I was also writing more and more, like sort of repeating myself in the poems and thinking a lot about things like nostalgia and authenticity in terms of, and memory in terms of doubling too. Like a memory, when you think of it, you, you're not, uh, you're not reliving anything. You're, you're telling yourself a story about what happened in the past, right? You're doubling your doubling was something that actually happened. And same with authenticity, the idea of like what's authentic is sort of a, an illusion in that sense as well. Like authenticity can be doubled as well. Um, and at the same time, um, my wife and I, uh, uh, my wife got pregnant and with our first son. And so I was thinking a lot about fatherhood. And obviously, again, there's, there's an idea of your child sort of like doubling you, but also your partner and your life, but not as a, not as a, and that sort of like made a lot of sense to me and really helped solidify everything because a child isn't a, isn't a copy of you, right? It's not a, a clone, but no. it's double in a sense. It contains, <laughs> no, but it contains you and it, it, it's, it's a, it's a double, but it's an imperfect double. It, it's a different double. So with all of this in mind, I, I just, that just clicked and everything sort of came together in that. And at that point I was able to take all these poems I was writing and go back and sort of add more repetition and more doubling to them and really emphasize these themes that I was looking for and overall sort of like weave them together into the collection. So it started off just writing poems, but okay. I think I would look at what unconsciously I had been doing and then make order out of it. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I mean, some people will have like a body of work and then they'll go through it and see what might work for a collection. I've, I've heard of that method too. There's uh, there's there's probably as many different ways of writing a poem, writing, write, write, putting together a collection as there is of writing a poem. So I don't know. You know. Oh, really? yeah. <laughs> I just read A.F. Moritz's new collection, yeah. uh, as far as you know. And it's really fascinating because it's like he, it, he dates every poem and they all go sequentially. They're chronologically. They move through. I think it's like two years. Like a day book almost. In the, yeah, almost. But he says there's a note section in the back. There's a little essay he wrote about his technique where he, he did call from this. Yeah. But he wanted to have sort of a, almost like a diary-like yeah. uh, book. But it wasn't about his life necessarily. Like he drops in the fact that he had heart surgery in the middle of it. He was right. like, you attention to this part that's what kind happened. of an important fact yeah to include yeah. In, in everything you're doing really <laughs> i think yeah but i really was like the idea of sort of it being a, a representation of your life and not necessarily like um like an actual hard autobiography yeah. you know? that's it that's what we have like video video uh, blogs for i guess now i don't know i'm just guessing <laughs> Great. So this is this is a, um, a as I said a book a Buck Rider Books imprint and your second after our Inland Sea. Um, so you worked with Paul Vermeersh. Obviously, yeah. yeah I, I said I'm assuming you worked with Paul Vermeersh, as if you know you wouldn't be working. But I obviously yeah. So what was the process like this time? And were there any differences between the process of editing the second book and the first? Oh, absolutely. I mean. Um... I met Paul when I worked at a different bookstore in Toronto. I worked at Book City in the Annex, okay. really classic Toronto bookstore. It's yeah. not around anymore. Yeah. But um, <laughs> we met there, and uh, I was a very young poet. I never really went to university or anything. I, I just did a certificate for program at Simon Fraser University called the Writer's Studio, which was really great. Um, but when I got home and moved back to Toronto after that, I was kind of lost and not really writing a lot. But I did have two poems pub published in Prairie Fire, and uh, Paul happened to see them when we're working together. And he just said, yeah, I saw your poem. They're very good. If you wanted to ever meet up sometime to talk about poetry, you'd be glad to. And he became a mentor to me on my first book. And really, I had no idea how to make it. I'd never done a chapbook or anything like that either or worked with an editor. So it was, it was the first book's a, a real you're looking at some real mentorship there and Paul helping to guide me. And really there was some heavy editing on the poems and a lot of stuff was cut out. And I, you know, I pushed myself to write more for it. But by this, this time around, it was like, I, um, I was really good at self editing. I think I'm a pretty harsh self editor. Like I, yeah. I, I'm a very kill your darlings kind of guy. So <laughs> I went through, it was, it was more hands off like we only did it one time I think the first time it was sort of a constant process of like I would write a chunk and then we'd work on it and I'd write a chunk and then we'd work on it and this time I just came to him with the manuscript when he said he wanted it and we started at that point so it, it was a, it was a very different uh style this time around 
No, that's that's great. It's uh, it's so good that to have a good uh, mentor to help you though. That's that's really great that he uh, stepped forward like that. And yeah, and and I certainly love the books that have come out through Buck Rider books. Like, uh, oh, they're fantastic. Yeah, also yeah. an incredible eye. Yeah, my, I love uh, Voodoo Hypothesis, for instance. With the Just amazing, right? Yeah. The, the, yeah. I, there's so many incredible books that's come out. I like Danny Couture and. Yeah. Just amazing poets have been associated with that in print. It's very happy to be there. Yeah, that's great. So, and I, w I was going to ask you, I don't know if we, we've already kind of covered a little bit about the differences between our inland sea and, and double self-portrait. You talked about the humor. And is there anything else you can say about the, the any differences between them? I always remember, you know, it's, I, here's, a, here's a memory thing. is I remember a Timothy Donnelly quote about his first book. And I can't find this quote. I've looked for it so many times, so I may have just made this up. But I associated with Timothy Donnelly, and I remember with his book, he said he called it a wild party. <laughs> and then his second book, he decided he actually wanted to try to write about things. And Donnelly was a big influence on this book because he is sort of a very essayistic poet who has a lot of the, the aesthetics and uh, sort of just joy of like the New York School of Poets, like John Ashbery, who I've always really loved, but also, does write about specific things like environmentalism and politics and things like that. And I agree that my first book was a bit of a wild party. I think, you know, I wrote it when I was in my twenties and I was, I was very influenced by Ashbury's more like, like a more esoteric side and poets like uh, Clark Coolidge and Gertrude Stein and, and a lot of language poets. And I wasn't really too, not that I was leaning towards anything that conceptual and it's still a book of lyric poetry, but I, I really was into just, just having it be a, a wild, a wild bash, sort of. Yeah, and I looked back and I, I really like that. I think it is sort of fun in some ways. There's some like really spooky parts to it, but it's also just a, a wild party, you could say. But I did have, I wanted to try more concept this time around. I was really reading a lot of books that had incredible, like incredible conceptual books of poetry. And I wanted to try to do something like that this time around. That makes sense. Well, that kind of that kind of goes fits perfectly into the next question. I, I guess uh, who are some of your poetic influences, but especially for this book, I, I think maybe, or but in general too, if you if you can talk about. In, um, oh, sorry, talked a little bit about it. But anyway. yeah. I think it's you know I'm I'm going to walk over to my bookshelf here while we're doing this. So I can help remind me. You have a memory dog. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what's interesting, like as a bookseller. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do have some like classic influences like Ashbury or Frank O'Hara um, that I had read a lot while growing up. But um, I think by the, t you know, as a bookseller, I was reading a lot of contemporary stuff mm -hmm. all the time. And that was really, really important to me um, to sort of just keep, keep current. And I, I, I'd, so more so than like classics, I think a lot of it was just a, a huge, like I was a bookseller for wide over a decade. So just keeping on, I was reading just like whatever I thought was interesting all the time. But this book in particular, uh, Olio by Tamitha the Jess, wow. just absolutely floored me. It won the Pulitzer Prize that's on Wave Books. And it's an amazing, um, amazing conceptual book of poetry which is all about the african-american poser scott joplin mm -hmm. and it's sort of it's 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 from his perspective as he negotiates what music was as he composes um he frequently talks in it like there'll be discussions uh within two voices there's sort of these two call you can't the everyone can't see what i'm showing you amanda I'm doing yeah. Like two columns. Columns, yeah. They and talk back and forth, and he does so many neat things. There's pullouts in this book, like you can just there's like whole pullouts and like long poems and stuff. I loved, I loved it. It was, it, it's half poetry. It's, it's. There's some fictional elements in there, historical fiction. There's actual like nonfiction and history and biography, and I thought that was just incredible. And and so this time around, like I said, I really was thinking about how to make a conceptual book of lyric poetry mm. work. And with the idea that I wanted it to be somewhat personal, but relate it to pop culture and art and other things beyond me, um, that, that, was, that book became a real touchstone for me. I sort of like, I encountered it about midway through writing this, but that was just when I, was, I had a lot of questions about how to form it. And that book really helped me uh, figure that out. 
It's great the way I find that happens to me too. Sometimes I'll read something and immediately it will, it will sort out a problem I've been having in my writing. Like I'll, I'll you know, I, I, maybe I had a problem in how to structure something and then I read something. Like, oh, that's exactly like, I may not do it the same way exactly, but it's inspired me to, it's helped me to figure it out or something and just inspired me so much that I've, it's galvanized me into working on something that maybe has taken me a while to get back into or you know so oh yeah i think that's why and there's so many quotes in this book like i think you just yeah. heard amy hemphill the yeah. uh right a uh, carrington quote in, in the poem i just read but the whole book is just filled with quotes from whatever i've been reading at the time you know i just, they became as important like i always have this sort of document on my phone if something just comes to me i'll just put it in really quickly mm -hmm. But that became more and more quotes I was using as well, or even just art that I would be like, "Oh, look at that later when you need to write." That's good. I have a I have a label maker, and so I you know I I'm I'm having to use it less and less for like I used to use it, use it a lot for the Ontario Arts Council uh, recommender grant or writers reserve for program applications. You know, sending out twenty two you know envelopes with applications and stuff. Like that. Now that we don't have to do that, it's online. So I, I'm using the label maker more and more. What I do is I instead of typing in addresses now I'm well. I, I'll do that too still, but I also, I also put in quotes as well. So then I have like sticky, uh, I have these nice, so I can just peel off and stick it on to different places. Like I have them on my filing cabinet and stuff like that, different, different quotes around. And I love, I love good quotes and I'll mail people postcards with a quote from a book I've recently read or something like that. So, uh, yeah. That's a very neat way of doing it. It's, it's my, it's almost like a Martha Stewart thing. For, <laughs> quotations in your you know label maker and then you can surprise and influence your friends or something <laughs> i don't know what martha stewart sounds like she doesn't sound like that i don't know who that who that was <laughs> i was i was definitely hearing some martha channeled there <laughs> there you go oh, i have no idea that's funny so i that's another thing i want to talk about is, is um i i thought there was a surrealistic contemporary Sur Canadian surrealistic aspect, surreal aspect to your work. So I, I, uh, I don't know if you if you've ever uh, read uh, Surreal Estate, Thirteen Canadian Poets Under the Influence, but it was published by the Mercury Press back in two thousand four. Stuart Ross was the editor. He said he says the book includes writers whose work has been influenced by the surrealism of Breton, etc. He says we live in a society that respects control, power, and conscious decision to invade sovereign. So sovereign countries, destroy natural environments, guzzle natural resources, etc. Those of us who embrace the possibilities of randomness, absurdism, chance, error, and the unconscious are happily out of step. So that's what he says about that book. It's a great book. I go, I go back to it constantly, actually. I find it really good. But do you see your work as being influenced by surrealism or using some of these techniques that Stuart's described at all? Do you hear Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I mean, I don't, I don't really consider myself uh, like a a surrealist, but I also don't really like, other than like, you know, you could say, I, I think of my poetry as, as lyric poetry bec because yes. it is, but, yeah. but I don't really consider myself part of one uh, camp or the other necessarily. But I think surrealism is, has always, especially in, in, in all art, has been a, attracted to me. You mentioned Leonora Carrington already, so you, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, that became, you know, I, I first encountered her actually not through her art, but reading her collected short stories where that yeah. quote comes yeah. from. There was an amazing book published by Dorothy Press. Yeah. And, um, but then I, I encountered her art afterwards and I, I really loved it. Um, but I would say surrealism, even in terms of like, like I love, I, I just read so widely, I guess. And yeah. a lot of it does get really weird. Like I, I think one of my favorite novelists is Donald Antrim who writes very sort of, I would say surrealist, realist books, you know, like one of his novels is The Hundred Brothers, which is about um, a, a a 100 fraternal brothers who meet up in their father, their deceased father's library, to which is a huge building, to decide what to do with it because it's crumbling and it needs renovations and stuff. But for example, they never explain how it's possible that a hundred brothers are related to each other, right? Right, right. so you have to. Yeah, <laughs> but the tone of the book is quite serious and realist in that sense, but in, in every other sense, but um, these are actual people and they do real things, you know, they have jobs and whatever, but there's that quality of just the setup. It, it was so right. impressive to me, but I, you know, I've always been attracted to weirder music or, or difficult literature and uh, challenging art in that way. So maybe not so much surrealism, but just things that uh, difficult yeah, things that require you know, kind of challenging of the status quo in, in, in some way. I, I found too, like there's a technique. I, 
I, I should really, I should write about this at some point because I haven't seen it written about there's, uh, as far as the, um, the, the um, Canadian surrealists or contemporary surrealists, if you want, I mean, they, they do all kinds of other stuff too. So it's not, you know, but like Stuart and Gary Barwin, Michael Castiles, Jason Aru, Alice Burdick. And I've seen some of this in your work is basically there's a technique which I call reversal, which is where the object is acted upon instead of the object being the recipient of something. And I wish I should have just get, wrote down some examples, but basically the object is basically, it, it's doing the thing. And so instead of like, it, this is a bad example, but instead of like, you know, something is happening to the sky, so the sky is doing the thing, and it becomes almost like a personification is what, what, so I saw that a lot in your, or as somewhat in your, in your work, and that's why I thought of that as the main reason why, it's funny, I, I'm sure I have that in my notes, but they're all, they're all, they're in my handwriting, which means I can't read them, <laughs> so that's, no, but uh, yeah, so that's what I was thinking of about that in, in particular, but someone, that, I call it the reversal, so if we, uh, there's probably a better and more, more a term with an X in it or something that's Latin that really is. <laughs> I just found out recently through a shaming on Facebook that I've been not about it wasn't a shaming of me but a shaming of someone else I was using in media rest and apparently it's in media stress so I was I, I'm doing oh really I'm ashamed now that I've been using the wrong Latin term all along but, I've yeah. done that a few times just backed away from it like ooh that yeah. wasn't directed at me, but I am guilty of that. Yeah, I do. I, I admit, I'm just like, oh, I thought it was all good. Because I, I didn't know. I, I always said in media, but I don't know my Latin. Uh, you know, apparently my name ha means to be loved in Latin. Okay, so that's good. But uh, that's all. Yeah. In the background, you may hear some sirens. Nothing's happening. I'm on the 19th floor. so But I have the window closed. So that's I literally it. live next to the train tracks. So I call <laughs> no, Are you on the wrong side of the tracks? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> We like to think we're on the right side, but kind of these days it's hard to tell. <laughs> we're all on the wrong side in 2020. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, so uh, you were talking about music. So you you co-run. You're still doing that with a record label with Paul Lawton. Uh, how did that happen? And do you think there's any overlap between the label and your writing? Uh, in the about section of the of uh, PleasanceRecords.com, you mentioned a preference for the oddball and the experimental. So I was happy. To, I'm always happy to hear that. So being a lot of oddball <laughs> over here, but yeah. So, are there any connections there? Do you think between the? Um, yeah, I, I would. It's hard for me to 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 separate my influences. I'd say. Yeah. I, to be fair, we, we the the label isn't isn't very active anymore. I yeah. do work. Um, after my son was born, I sort of had to make the choice to to. Um, settle down to a more secure job and the music industry was never very secure in the first place and we were never a very profitable label releasing music like this but we were around for about 10 years i mean we're still active you can still buy stuff from our yeah. website but um it started uh, i had actually uh after my mother passed away inherited her house and we sold it uh i sold it and renovated it and sold it and and with the money i afterwards i put it in the savings account i didn't really know what to do with it and a friend of mine uh said she was about to start uh she wanted to put out a record for our, one of our favorite bands which is a really a really strange weird artsy punk band from toronto called induced labor <laughs> and we both really loved them and i asked if i could help out with that and she said yes and then we just kept going and um it was that was a very special time in toronto music for me there was a lot of record labels some of them are still around today and um there was a real feeling of community and support between everyone and a, a lot of people on our level were trying to represent the music in Toronto that wasn't um, that wasn't being represented. Like I think of label like Arts and Crafts that broken social scene started. Yeah. Um, they were really good at representing sort of the pop popier side of everything and the rock music that was coming out of Toronto. But there was so much else going on, and and we were really interested. Again, we were we just listened so widely, so we we were putting out punk records, but we put out electronic music or ambient music, uh, mm -hmm. folk music, you know all the. Uh, just anything that appealed to us, we were putting it out. So that's pretty much how it came to be. And, and my original partner, Deirdre O'Sullivan, at some point left to focus on school. And then Paul came on board. He owned a label out in Lethbridge, Alberta called Mammoth Cave. And we went for a couple more years before uh, we both decided we had to stop for the moment. Um, right. But that, that was it. It, 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 was, it was incredibly rewarding work it was it was really challenging and it wasn't very profitable right. but 
<laughs> but just to be in the heat of when it went well, it was just the most thrilling, beautiful thing in the world. And to be in the middle of all of that and, and watching your bands play and tour and do moderately well, you know, I'm, it was amazing. Sounds neat. Well, it sounds like some of my favorite movies. So there you go. <laughs> you know, record labels and bands, you know, that uh, do badly at first and then they do better. And, you know, I love those kind of things. And then they do badly again. Yeah, and then they do badly again <laughs> in the space of the... Uh, actually, a movie I just I saw not too long ago was Her Smell. Did you see that? It's a really great movie with Elizabeth Moss about a, a band, but it's mostly about her character. And she just, she becomes really just, she's so troubled. She's such a troubled person. The act, the actress does an amazing job. I think it's probably, uh, I, anyway, it's, it's really good. It's all about that. So if you, it's a, it's a kind of a dark and hard movie to watch. It's not for, but I mean, I thought it was amazing and I cried at one part of the movie. So just, if you, yeah. on canopy.com for free, if you have a library card. So Ooh, if you, canopy. yeah, I'll check it out. Thank I you. I love canopy. So yeah, that's it. But yeah, so that's, that's neat. Uh, another, another aspect of your life is that you work at now at uh, Coach House Books, which is how we first started to talk actually, I think. And so what's your role there? How did you end up there? And uh, does it give you any insight or ideas on how you approach writing, publishing and promoting your work? And if you have any interesting stories that you, you were allowed to tell us, you, those are fun too. If not, that's we'll wait for the next poetry book. <laughs> uh, well, I had always, like I said, I'd been a bookseller for a long, long yeah. time in Toronto and, and Coach House is a, is a big, big presence here. And I'd always been a huge fan of the press and especially the poetry and everything they they did. And I, I'd met Alana through the bookstore and, and, and going to Coach House events. Alana Wilcox, the editor, head editor of Coach House. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I had been looking to make the jump into publishing i really really wanted to and um that was when the record label was winding down my son was about six months old and mm -hmm. I, I, a position came up for sales and marketing coordinator and i jumped at it and ended up getting it did a couple interviews and i mean i'm still there going yep. on going on two years now so um yeah it, it was that quick but it was it was a lot of my experience with the record label i think so i'm the sales and marketing coordinator there but i also do publicity and yeah. so manage the social media and things like that which is like when when i was running the record label and there was just two of us like you do everything anyways like you know, we never had interns or anything like that so i mean you, you know one day you're writing press releases the other day you're hauling boxes to the post office or going down running a you know we'd rent our own shows so i'd be the guy at the front you know taking you 10 bucks or trying to sell you a record or whatever <laughs> but i'd also you know be working with bands on the actual records themselves and developing them things like this so it was just a lot of different skills you had to do so uh, i think it fit well for coach house yeah for sure so, the ability to do lots of different things at any given time and uh, to learn. There's just a lot of learning, especially right now. Publishing is, is really in flux. So yeah, it's different. <laughs> really different without without having bookstores being the same as they used to be, and um, it's it's just a new game. So we're doing a lot of improvising and thinking on our feet and trying things out. And when they don't work, so just learning what what happened and, and moving on. Uh, which was what running a record label was like, really. It was, it was never a static process. Um, but yeah, I think it has helped my writing. I think it's made me more, I, I think certainly when I get an email from my publisher, I try to get back to them as quick as yeah, I can. That's good. <laughs> I appreciate that. Some people take a long time with emails and it's yeah. like, for good reason, but because it, it's so, they get so many, but you know. Yeah. And I think because I never went to university, like I, I was always sort of lacking, um, in the in the community um I, I would always go to like my favorite reading series in toronto was always pivot when i was going and i would go and talk to everyone you try to talk to people and meet the poets and stuff but i didn't have a ton of other friends who were active writers or anything like that so this was a really good like both when i would i work for open book i, I mentioned before we started right. and I, for four years that was a, a great experience for me too to to engage with people to talk with them just to meet other poets and talk about poetry and likewise this has been an incredible experience to just meet other people in the literary industry just to talk about them like you know i mean this is how we're talking right now right so <laughs> yeah it's funny doing the part i mean until until the pandemic i i've only like been doing interviews with people in person so now the it's really opened up this uh podcast because now i can talk to people all over the place in fact on wednesday i'm uh, interviewing um richard uh Kapener. i'm not sure if that, i'm pronouncing his name right and he's he's he runs this um 
literary online literary journal called uh, the Babel Tower Notice Board, and it's 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 in out of England. So I'm interviewing my first overseas. Uh, oh, wow. So that will be, and we've got our times uh, time zones straight and things like that. But uh, uh, yeah, so it really has um, as 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 difficult as it's been in so many ways. I have really appreciated this chance to start talking to people outside of the, those who are just in Ottawa are just coming or just coming to Ottawa for a reading. But uh, I love having the in person ones though. But this is kind of nice too. I don't have to clean my my bathroom every time. So you know, we have to, <laughs> I don't mind. But you know, it's like oh no, I have to do clean the bathroom again. So you know, this is this is good. There's uh, so many good reasons why yeah so okay that that's good and uh, so uh, in the, talking about the book now um, the speaker addresses the reader directly sometimes and, and repeats it's all a terrible lie you repeat it in the, in the poem we heard and it's it's like a refrain in the book almost like a chorus to a song what prompted you to breach the fourth wall I always I never remember if it was the third wall or the fourth wall I think I had to look up to see if it was the third or fourth. I think it's the fourth and this the fourth. Did, <laughs> yeah, how many walls are there in the, in the fifth wall but anyway did, and did this repeated line come naturally or did you add it I'm asking because when I wrote my book Kiki uh, which came out with show your books I was stuck for a few years on the first section until I wrote the line this is Alice this is fucked up and then as soon as I had that line I could write that section and it just it's sort of it's just sort of freed the thing so um, did it's all a terrible lie serve as a hook or give you permission somehow to write the poems in the book or well that came from um a poem called Italy by Donald Britton, which I also talk about in the book. Yeah. And again, this is sort of a good example of my bookseller influences. Um, I don't think a ton of people know Donald Britton or his work, mm -hmm. but uh, his book, he only wrote one collection during his lifetime um, called Italy. And um, a second collection was published, collected with and published after he passed away a long time ago. Uh, he, he was writing in the in the 90s he lived in los angeles so the two collections were published together called empire of the air and there was a john ashbury blurb on the back so i, I picked it up you know, i just did work unpacking books you know books from a box to put on the shelves and i just I had a beautiful cover and i was taken by it and i just started reading it and i just loved him so much he was actually i, I always have a, a fondness for working poets mm -hmm. and apparently he was a he worked in advertising and had a day job and he worked quite hard and but he was still it was just so it just floored me it reminded me of like wallace stevens who was like you know he was like a vice president at an ad company like right. in or something and he was getting up every morning at the crack of dawn to write this like incredibly important poetry before going off to work to do That's whatever great. do this very unpoetic work so I, 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 I loved all this and there's a, the title poem of his collection, Italy, um, has that line in it. And he says, I don't know why I mentioned Italy at the beginning of this poem because yeah. it's all a terrible lie. And I, I guess, you know, thinking about doubling and things like that, um, that became sort of not just a refrain for me, but the idea that doubles are kind of like lies too. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in necessarily a negative way, but what is a lie, but sort of a, a double in itself a double of the truth right like an incorrect or different version of that so that became really important for me and i knew i would i had these longer poems that i knew i wanted to break up the sections yeah throughout it and i just thought as a way for me i really work well within constraint too and a way for me to finish those poems and condense them um i thought that if they all ended on that refrain that was a really nice way of tying them all together yeah, that makes sense. And I think too, like this sort of, um, one of the things that happens is the direct address between the speaker of the poems and the writer, that 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 creates a kind of doubling as well. So um, writing itself is a kind of duplication to recreate an experience, right? As you yeah. say, I wanted to write a poem about it or based on it. I wanted to double my memory of the warmth so I could feel it again, dear reader. You know, this is yeah. the one it's from. So I found myself thinking about poetry analysis, poets' intentions and author response. Uh, so there's references to writing and failing in the book. You write poetry is a lie, dummies insist it is faithful. Is that perhaps part of the reason for including a direct address in the book in a way to kind of make that make that understanding, you know, more concrete that there is a a kind of a doubling between the speaker or the writer and the reader and 
Well, I think I was like, I was trying to do something akin to criticism, like mm -hmm. literary criticism in a yeah. way, by addressing the reader in it. And then I was, I was, I was criticizing, you know, analyzing my own book and by, by way of that also myself at the same time. And I think that poem in particular that you take the line from there is called Counter Earth. And <laughs> when I was thinking a lot about conspiracy theory as I read that poem, because conspiracy theories in themselves are like a, a doubling of the truth, right? Yeah. Like, of, of reality. I, I don't, I, I wouldn't call myself a conspiracy theorist by any ways, but I do find them very interesting. Yeah. You know, like, a, you know, even new conspiracy theories like QAnon, but right back to Counter-Earth itself references the idea, an older, much older conspiracy theory or, or alternative truth that there was a second Earth hidden on the other side of the sun and at a parallel orbit, so we would never see it, but it had existed there and everything that was here was different over there. And of course, it's you can't ever prove that, right? You know, I mean, you could, but people would. Anyways, I wanted, so... For me, that poem is itself a little conspiracy theory. It is a, it is, that poem is a lie in itself. And the word, I, I wanted it to be a little harsh, a little cynical. So that's why I have dummies in there. Because in yeah. the end, I'm calling, I, I'm being self-deprecating by um, saying yeah. that. <laughs> like, I am, I am the poet who's you're, now trying to sell it to you. You're a lie. You're, you're, you're doing the lying and you're... I am the liar, yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, Another thing is uh, there are this is a slightly different but I guess it's related to as I'm going through the book So there are all kinds of insects and animal life in the book cicadas, especially I think insects uh, in, uh, Cicadas and bees in particular might have a few significances in the book Can you talk more about them and the other insects and animals in the book? Yeah, I think in a, in a strange way, I've come to think of myself as like a half nature poet. <laughs> I live in the city. I've always lived in Toronto and I love living in cities. Yeah and uh, I, but I still find myself attracted to the nature sort of all around us, and it plays a significant part for me when writing. Um, I can see that in my first book as well quite a lot, I think. But cicadas and bees became popular for me. Like, I, I, I do have a distinct memory of um, writing, working on this book one summer on, on a very hot day, and the, the cicadas, it was late August, and there, there's a chorus of them outside, and I don't know if this is a particularly Ontario thing, but they, they are deafening, right, when they're all yeah. full blast, they're so loud, and, but at the same time, like, I, it, like, I felt like I was noticing cicadas and bees being written about quite a lot, like, I just read, actually, a Sherman Alexi poem directly about bees dying, and I think at that time, there was a lot of worrying about bees disappearing completely, and there still is, and a lot of poets were sort of responding to this by writing about bees or including bees, so bees and cicadas, um, had this poetic significance to me that but, but it was like a cliche but i think what's interesting about that i don't mean that in a, a negative way i think cliches are very very interesting mm -hmm. the cliches are kind of they represent something else so by using cicadas and bees over and over again sort of interchangeably too they're just these like little i almost think of these like small powerful little meaning machines that make a lot <laughs> of noise, right oh. uh, they buzz and they hum and um, and, and they're and they're invisible for the most part too. I think that's why poets really really like them. But I was using it like I was. It was important for me to have like include the cliche within it because just like I was using Donald Britton's line uh, uh, over yeah. and over and other quotes, this was a way for me to like sort of touch other poets and other work in there. Well, interesting. I like that idea. That's really cool. The other thing about bees, I guess. Well, I think uh, honeybees, for instance, they have a language that they uh, they basically use uh, with the orientation of the sun. They communicate with their tail wagging. The, so they they communicate with the location of the honey and stuff like that. So they're they're communicators. The bees. So uh, just, just the other day on Twitter, I saw someone said that like their kid or their mother said to him like do you know that cicadas spend 17 years underground and they said yes mother all poets know that oh, <laughs> no. and I, I found interesting too with cicadas that uh, you know they did this it's it's out of the, the it's like it's to do with prime numbers because they were trying to avoid their there are there are certain types of um species of of, of creatures and things that uh uh, have their natural predators come out at a different time like so they it's a prime number they they are around at the time when their natural predators are not unfortunately with cicadas they're apparently well the black ones that come out every 17 years or whatever and they they mate and everything apparently they're really tasty to humans so <laughs> oops 
<laughs> there is that plan, and we're here all the time so far, anyway, for now. But uh, I, I, apparently, they, yeah, the, they taste like lobster or something like that. So I don't know. I've never uh -huh. tried. Never tried one. That'll be that. Good to know. Yeah, that's it. Good to know in a crisis. Uh, another another weird uh, question, I guess, is uh, I, I I wonder if you're a fan of science fiction. Just again, Counter Earth and a few others of times where your poems have a sci-fi feel to them, references to Earthlings and other stuff. And and have you ever thought about writing science fiction? It's, it's there in your book already, I think, in some extent. So. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I haven't read science fiction in a long time. The last science fiction I, I read was actually for work. Uh, it was for the, the Imago stage by Caroline George's novel, originally published in French and and. and Quebec was translated for us by Rhonda Mullins. Uh, that was the last sci-fi read for for a while too, actually. But when I was a kid, I, I was deeply into sci-fi and fantasy. Um, you know, I read the I or I had I, I was so young. I had the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings read to me. Those were like my bedtime stories yeah. when I was quite young. And I was really into Isaac Asimov and, and Ray Bradbury. And I had uh, I, I used to have. Um, a book on tape of William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy reading Ray Bradbury stories that I would listen to every night while I slept or while I was trying to go to sleep. So it's definitely been a huge influence on me. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think of it in different ways too. I, I, someone asked me in my first book too, like a similar question about music and, you know, he's like, you're, you're so connected to music. Well, how does it affect your work? And it was like, and similar to sci-fi, like I, it's not that I'm trying to make my poems into, into miniature sci-fi stories as yeah. much, but I love the the sort of jumps that they can do in reality. You know, like uh, there's a there's a poet in Argent or not a poet, a novelist, an Argentinian novelist named uh, Caesar Era, and his work's being translated in English more and more and more. He's written forty novels; they're all very very short. But his style is that he goes to the same cafe every day to write. And he writes for exactly the same amount of time and then he closes, you know, what he's doing and stops. And then he goes back the next day and opens it up. And because of this, um, he writes himself into corners that he can't get out of. So he often relies on science fiction, fantasy or surrealism to sort of just do a hard left turn there, right? So it's like if, if he can't figure out how, where he's going, it's like all of a sudden, you know, there's a, a, a crazy time machine here. And you're like, where is this coming from? Like everything up until this point was talking about a literary conference or something. And now all of a sudden we have a time machine and giant monsters. And this book has gone completely off the rails. And similarly, I, I really like his style of like, they're not science fiction books. He just incorporates the sort of techniques of science fiction in there. That's great. We could, we could, I think 2020 is a little bit like that already. We're having suddenly weird things happening out of the blue. We don't know about so that we start believing that there are dolphins in the Venice canals and things like that, because why not, you know, why not? I mean, it's, it's why not to have a bunch of monkeys having, having stolen the, uh, the, uh, coronavirus and you know are wandering around with it from a lab you know okay fine whatever you know we'll believe everything we well, there's a lot of that in conspiracy theory right yeah. like, that's sort of why i find it so interesting is because you know like history is is very boring like i'm hoping as a criticism but to to study <laughs> history is a is a is a long boring task it's never ending right like it's not a, a complete story it's constantly being revised and you have to like look back and it's always being written and rewritten it's, it's just a process right. but conspiracy theory makes a lot of bold claims without much to back it up like there's a second earth or you know like donald trump is actually like he just trying to bust a ring of pedophiles and that's everything he's doing is about that and yeah. it's so much more fun to believe in in a way like i, I get the temptation because there's a security there right you don't well, have to do the magic as well right because like well maybe there's something magical will happen and you know, take us out of this misery or whatever right so yeah or flat earth i think it would be so nice to believe in a flat earth because it's just it, there's so much to believe in there and yeah it, then you could just walk everywhere like you wouldn't you know, it would be pretty easy probably yeah so, I, so talking about your um, your book launch, uh, so it, it happened in August virtually through Knife Fork Book, the wonderful Knife Fork Book. How has it been to launch a book during the pandemic? What are some of the things you've done differently or your publisher has done differently for the book? Um, well, it's strange, right? Um, it, it is nice in some ways. 
I, I am a bit of a homebody, I'll admit, so uh, I don't <laughs> mind it as much as some other people, but staying home as much as some other people. But, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I love launching books. I loved going to my friend's book launches. I, yeah. I love the idea. There's, there's a lot of people I haven't seen in a very long time now, because I, I think I only saw them at readings, you know, or, or literary events. And uh, we were friends, but we were never like the kind of friends who would go have dinner together or anything. But we we might talk for a good 15, 20, 30 minutes at a, at a book launch. So. That's a good term for that, for your, your, your friends that you meet regularly at readings. There should be one German word for that. And Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Stuart Ross was a guy, he used to come down Toronto regularly lives in Coburg but he would you know drive down to Toronto to run errands or whatever and he would drop by type when I was working at the bookstore yeah. and we would hang out for an hour or, or more when he was there just chatting you know and I'd show him around and talk about new books and stuff and it's it's I, I miss that quite a lot yeah the, the virtual events are are they're a replacement but they're not really a, they don't equal what what it used to be the community atmosphere and everything like that so um, I mean, all I can say, the, the advice to writers now and, and what I see all publishers doing, it, everyone is just really like taking every opportunity you can at the moment. Right. We're not sure what's going to work. Nobody has any great answers. Like that's the point. Yeah. Some people are doing it better than others, but it's, all, you know, I, I think it's more of like some people have better opportunities as well. And, you know, so I... It, I've, I have cautioned writers to say yes to every single thing now. And, and we try to do it, you know, it, it should be an obvious, but I think it's just more with even more emphasis this time around. You're like, you like, you got to get out there somehow. You know, I, I, I would have loved to have taken a trip to Ottawa. To yeah. Do, well, we were going to do that, right? Yeah. Darren in Montreal or whatever, you know, but that's just not a possibility now. So this, this is, you know, so instead we'll do this and I'll say yes, 100%, but obviously it's not the same if we were to meet up or yeah. like meeting tonight or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. And, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, so I was going to say too, that, uh, Kirby is so supportive of the poetry community, not just in Toronto, but all over and knife fork book is such a necessary and important, uh, not place or space, but I would say a movement even, even I, I think it's like a big, so how important is community for you as a writer? It's kind of talked a little bit about that already. Yeah, I, you know, I think I'm very much as I get older and becoming more and more committed to my socialist politics and, and yeah. sort of thinking about everything in, in those senses. So it's incredibly important to me. And I think Knife Fork's just this amazing, shining example of someone, Kirby, who has been doing this for so long and is so passionate about it. As he said, he calls himself the poetry cheerleader, you know, like yeah. he is I feel like whenever you're doing something, he's there on the sidelines in a cute little outfit with pom-poms, just like driving you on. You can do this. You can do this. And, you know, being a poet is, is, is tough. It, it's yeah. hard. You don't, you know, poetry books take just as long as to write as novels, but obviously they don't get the recognition. You don't make the money. There aren't as many awards. There's, there's a lot stacked against young poets. And there's something absolutely beautiful to me about people who would choose, knowing all this, to yeah. choose a book of poetry or who choose to champion someone like Kirby who chooses to not only write poetry he's a poet himself but chooses to to spend his time um holding up people right encouraging people putting the spotlight on people making sure people aren't forgotten and giving giving a chance to people who would other not otherwise have a harder time being discovered especially right now yeah, I haven't. I haven't uh, just before the. Well, I was going to be reading in May in at Knife Fork Book, and uh, I hadn't. I hadn't been to the new space yet, so I was looking forward to going. So I'm still looking forward to getting into the, getting into the new space, and it seems like a lot of great things are happening there. So uh, yeah, it's good. Well, you we were talking about um, advice. Uh, what, do you have any advice for emerging poets, especially right now? It's, uh, it's so tough to be starting out with. The yeah. I I, you know, just, just, just read as much as you can and write as much as you can. I, I think there's a lot of pressure on young poets to be good <laughs> right now. And it's just emerging poets in a way and people in general, like your writing should be good. I think there was a lot of pressure at the beginning of the pandemic too. There was a, I remember a, a viral tweet going around where someone said, you know, just so you know, like Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were like, oh, come on, you know? Like, really? I was like, well, yeah, he also yeah, masturbated incessantly. And like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I do that too, but I don't write, write as much as him. 
<laughs> but I think it was this, this huge pressure. And I, I see it especially on young poets too. Um, especially like, and there's, I'm not criticizing at all, with, with, but with amazing people like Billy Ray Belcourt, for example, winning the Griffin Prize for his first book, you know, and then becoming a professor at the University of Maryland, that's incredible. And that is amazing. And he's fantastic. But that's not the standard for how young poets, you know, should be like, no, nor that he's suggesting that either. But I think it's okay to just fail for a while or to not be as good, or to give yourself that credit. Um, really, just by, you know, I mean, I think it was Gary Barwin himself who was giving away the Baby Platypus Award every year, right? For yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> just having finished a novel, because a novel in particular, that's a, you know, any book is just a huge feat to do. And you should feel good just about doing that. But there's a lot of pressure then to win awards or that it should be a good yeah. book. Everyone should recognize it. And say, it's okay if it's not. It's okay just to look back and like look at that as like a first step or a curve or you know part of the process. <laughs> That's good. So at the beginning of the, as I said, the new introduction for the small machine talks. It's um, that that you haven't heard yet, but it includes a theme song that outlines our new emphasis: a conversation about art and literature, duende, queerness, coping, tea, border blur, misfits, community, secret places, ragged edges, and whimsy. So I was wondering, I, I'm going to start this new feature. You're the first one I'm doing it with, and we, we've talked about it already so it's I'm not springing it on you as a surprise but uh, can you please pick one of the above and talk about it uh, in, in whatever way you want to, and you picked one uh, to talk about uh, you, you, you said you thought you might want to talk about Duende do you yeah I, I always I always I just I've always been a very interesting concept for me it's very elusive yeah. and uh, I, I always really like Lorca though in his work and um, that's why I've sort of always been interested. I didn't understand it, to be quite honest, for a long time. Like, I thought it was so interesting what he was talking about, the idea of deep song and gypsy song in Spain, yeah. but and, 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 and relating it to flamenco, the music and the dance. Uh, but at the same time, it's just a, it's such an evasive thing. But I, I think more and more, especially after finishing this book, I, I do understand it. Because to me, it is, it's about... Um, you know, in his mind, it's like the, the, the trickster, the mischief, the thing that's hard to put on. It's the affect, I would sort of think as. That the daemon, the green daemon eating almonds, right? And yeah. The, yeah. And I think, like like I said earlier, like I wanted to sort of write about things in, in, in my new book. I think it's a collection of things in there a lot of the time that does have duende in it. I think I my favorite poems aren't. Are, are more slippery in, in terms of like they're harder to say what they're about. And that for mm -hmm. me is duende and it has a very personal effect obviously upon the reader. It's why two people can read the same poem and have very different impressions of it. So I think it was something that's lacking. And I've been working on a new book already. And for me, that was like much likewise, I think, you know, after coming off my first book and wanting to do something more structured, um, this time I, I realized that I, I was really more attracted to and wanted to try to include more of the duende in it and make it a more evasive thing, a harder thing to put, uh, to be able to label each poem. So you sort of let, you have to, I think it has a lot of trust in it. You have to trust in yourself, in right. your, you know, to just do it. I remember hearing, uh, I keep, re you know, I'm just going to keep talking about Ashbury, I guess, but he, he was on, he was talking with uh, Paul Mondoon on the New Yorker podcast, a poetry podcast, it's amazing, where they say have a poet on, they read a, a poem by another poet they like, and they talk about it, and then they read one of their own poems. And Ashbury wrote, read a poem by Charles Simich called uh, The Psychopath, and mm -hmm. is about a snowflake, and it's just describing a snowflake like falling and on the street and blowing. And of course he never, you never, like he never labels who the psychopath was. And that's the brilliant thing about the poem, you know, is, right. and that's where the Duende lies is what this thing titled uh, the psychopath, but about a snowflake. That's it. It's like kind of a combination. Like I liked, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I say that uh, actually I'm driven. My work is driven by uh, Lorca's concept of the Duende, his, his interpretation. And, I, one of the things he gives an example of is the is the dancer who uh, basically just uh, sees these long knives and grabs them and starts dancing with them, you know, and it becomes a whole other thing. And so this kind of putting together, um, unlike things being driven sometimes by conversations, may, 
not like a muse, which comes from outside yourself, but something that comes from within more and being driven by something, especially a sense of impending death and having this continuous conversation between the living and the dead in a way. So the ghosts and everything else. So I, I love, I love the whole, I've written a lot about Duende and, and stuff. So I was glad when you chose that one. So it was an interesting one for me as well, I find. Yeah. I also think it's why poetry can be so frustrating to some people, right? Yeah. Like, it, it, when people say, I don't get this or whatever, I'm like, because it doesn't want you to get it. And if that's very important to you, then it's true. Poetry is probably not great. It's not necessarily a mathematical formula where you can have both sides have the balanced equation. You can really solve for X. You can't always. It's not so much that it's an attempt to, to be a riddle or a secret. It's just that they're different resonances and sometimes some res some things resonate for some people and some don't and things resonate in different ways i think so i think you know recently my wife and i have gotten back into doing puzzles in mm -hmm. the evening after our sons and she's great she's a puzzle master she really just like it's a very analytic mind and is able to right. just chomp her way through the puzzle and i really enjoy doing it, but i'm not very good at it and i i sort of like i had a bit of a yeah. epiphany that it, it like for me, working on a puzzle is like working on a poem. Like it is a puzzle. A poem is a puzzle. So I just don't care about finishing it or getting seeing the broader picture. I just like having all the pieces there and connecting. Right. If I get if I get two or three connected, I'm, I'm still having a good time. You know? And and the the process of the puzzle making is in itself a kind of a poetic process because you're trying and you're you're sort of trying and failing and you're trying over and over again until something kind of clicks together in some way. So there's is a kind of an interesting similarity in the process as well. Do you have any upcoming readings that we should talk about and link to in the... Uh, I am reading. It's it's not uh, listed yet, but I'll pass you the link when it is. It's, I'm reading at uh, the launch for Ian Williams' new book of poetry, Word Problems. Um, <laughs> it's a, it, with Paul Vermeersh, actually, too, who just put out his uh, first selected poetry, which is great. Um, but uh, it, it's just a fantastic, brilliant book. Ian's obviously a genius, and this book does all kinds of things that I've never seen in poetry before. Lines sort of just like just jam themselves through stanzas, you know, they just cross out poems. And there's a line of text that runs the top of the whole book, which you could just read as a separate narrative, but yeah, also comments on. It's yeah. just a fascinating book. And I'm not saying that just because I'm Ian's publicist. <laughs> I loved Ian's uh, novel. It was really good. Yeah. Reproduction, yeah. I love that. It was such a great book. I, I think that was some, uh, an early pandemic read for me, and I, I, I devoured it pretty quick. So <laughs> that was good. Uh, is there anything else you want, you want to add or, or say um, at this point before we wrap Thank up? Thank you very much, Amanda. I, I really do appreciate anyone who, who can put so much thought and time and, and consideration into a book of poetry, someone else's book of poetry. So I really, really appreciate you reading my book and thinking of such great questions and having me on your show. Thanks. I like to, I usually like to finish with just a, a, a little note about the book. So I, I've got this. James Lindsay's Double Self-Portrait is a playful and thoughtful poetry collection that examines expectations of truth by portraying it the way it, Okay, I don't know. I've got a typo in here. Okay, <laughs> sorry about uh, the the way it can be distorted, can be distorted, manipulated, and misinterpreted through memories, stories, portraits, and self-portraits, art, music, film, mirages, allegories, Gutenberg's stupid machine, plagiarism and appropriation, and even the poet's word themselves. Throughout the book, there is the continued refrain, a buzzing hum of cicadas or bees, a ringing in the ears, tiny fingers playing music in a code we don't understand, and the chorus, it's all a terrible lie. There's much wordplay and punnery, especially in the acrasis, acrasis section, a litany of psychological terms, music, wise philosophizing on human nature, as seen from the point of view of an introvert who is anxious and uncomfortable, humorous and humble. So uh, thanks to James Lindsay for being on the show to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for our new Small Machine Talk theme song, and to you for listening and sharing the episode. Stay tuned for the next episode with Gary Barwin in October and future episodes with Clara Duplessis, Sasha Archer, Pearl Peary, and a special episode on the poetic elements of music in December featuring amazing musician Subraj Singh. So uh, thanks again, James. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for listening to the Small Machine Talks. The small machine talks.